Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Apple Store Fifth Avenue. You guys excited to be here tonight? Well, we are too. We're very thrilled about tonight's event. Uh, meet the designers, graphic design now in production, an exhibit uh, at the Cooper Hewitt Museum. We have with us some guests from the Cooper Hewitt Museum, as well as some other guests too. Uh, please join me in welcoming Ellen Lupton and Andrew Blauvelt. Thank you so much. Hi there, it's great to be here. Um, I'm, yep, I'm Ellen Lupton. I'm a curator at Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum here in New York. And I'm Andrew Blaveld, curator of architecture and design at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis. And we're here to talk about our exhibition called Graphic Design Now in Production. Uh, which was, of course, jointly organized by the Walker Art Center and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum here in New York. Um, the exhibition actually started when Ellen found out that I was interested in doing a, uh, curating a graphic design show, and then she was also interested in doing one, so we decided to do it together. Um, because we're both practicing graphic designers, which makes it incredibly difficult to organize a show in the field that you practice in because already I've lost like thousands of friends that aren't in the show. So it's... <laughs> but we're still friends, which yes. is an even bigger miracle, yeah. <laughs> but we've made new friends from new people. <laughs> uh, so the exhibition is opening on Memorial Day weekend at Governor's Island. Um, it's organized by, by Cooper Hewitt, but, but taking place at Governor's Island, which is an incredible place to go. Um, so enjoy the holiday weekend and come and see graphic design um, and a great view of, of Manhattan from the other side of the water, which is very exciting. Oh, so the thesis of the show. Um, doing a graphic design show um, in 20, when did we start this? Like a couple years ago, 2010, thinking about it. It was like extremely difficult because we're not even sure how to find graphic design anymore. Um, it's, of course, a professional practice, but there are plenty. Uh, there's about 300,000 declared uh, out graphic designers, according to the last census. So, um, but we know that there's many more than that. There's probably 300,000 in Manhattan. So um, what does that mean? Well, there's plenty of people using the tools and the software of graphic design. So it's very appropriate that we're doing this event at the Apple Store because we trace the lineage of all of this ruckus to the introduction of the Macintosh in 1984, which took all the tools of graphic design and stuck them inside one box. Um, and that box, of course, beget other things. So we, had, we started with the desktop revolution, and then we had the internet revolution, which allowed all the boxes to talk to one another and then use distributive systems of production. I and mean, then maybe Ellen can talk more about the specific thesis about production. Right, so the idea of production is really to focus on design as work. And we're really interested in how the way designers work has changed um, and how the tools we use have changed what we make, how we make it, how people use it, how people perceive it. Um, so the word production is, is there to to reference this making and doing in a very active um, process. Uh, and that's why tonight we're going to share with you the voices of some of the designers and producers uh, featured in the exhibition. We're very excited to have Adam Moss here tonight. He is editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. And he's going to talk from an editor's perspective of how design functions 
in the running of a successful magazine. Um, so that is um, coming up and an exciting thing to see. Surprise. <laughs> uh, representing the area or the genre of motion graphics is Karen Fung, who is based now here in New York. But I first knew her when she was a West Coast gal in Los Angeles, heading up Imaginary Forces, where she's been for many years. And it's actually um, kind of, she doesn't know this, but prototypical of like the evolution of motion graphics in at the very beginning of the desktop revolution in motion graphics, and then now um, going through its heavy heavy machine phase, we could say, it's proprietary systems, and then back and out on the other side with a lot of desktop um, software, but bringing an important um, component of narrative to the idea of storytelling in motion graphics. Uh, and typography um, is an incredible, huge part of graphic design. Really, everything we do involves letters and words and text. And it's a field that is, is changing rapidly with um, endless new fonts and, and new ways to look at how to create letter forms. Uh, tonight, Keetra Dean Dixon and J.K. Keller are going to talk about their practice. Um, and they make letter forms not just uh, with digital technology, but also with unusual materials like wax and fabric and marshmallows and anything <laughs> you could think of. Ah, and then representing uh, the area, actually they're spotted throughout the show, but representing the area of branding in particular um, is Prem Krishnamurthy is here, one of the founding partners of Project Projects, also based here in New York, and what we think of as one of the leading examples of a, a really interdisciplinary design studio, which has its hands in everything from publishing to exhibition design to identity design. Um, and um, in the show, they're also taking a meta role in the show in that they're in charge of the installation design and exhibition graphics for its presentation here on, in New York at Governor's Island. So it's very exciting, which you see a photo of the show in production. Yes. Oops. And that's, uh, we were in Governor, Governor's Island today actually putting the show together. It is very much in production and not finished, and I hope it will be in time for you all to come and see it on Memorial Day weekend. Um, you have to take a ferry to get, get to Governor's Island. It's about a seven minute ride. It's beautiful. You can see the Statue of Liberty the whole time. Um, and the, the boat actually does rock. So speaking of rocking, uh, we're going to start the presentation. I just want to say a, a brief word about the format. Uh, we're using the Pecha Kucha format, which is every speaker has 20 slides, and each slide plays for exactly 20 seconds. So it's a bit of a, a game and a performance, and they got to keep up with their own content, and it's a lot of fun. So. Um, think warm thoughts, and we will just go ahead um, and do it. Thank you. So hello, uh, I'm Adam Moss, as it says up there. Um, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to this. It's, uh, it's wonderful that New York is represented uh, in this show. I'm, I'm not going to talk exactly... Uh, uh, about what they said I was going to talk about. Um, I'm going to instead give you a very, very quick, very, very quick graphic history of New York Magazine, six minutes, 40 seconds worth of it. Um, and I've timed it all screwy, 
So sometimes I'm going to talk really fast, and sometimes I'm going to talk a little bit slower, just to keep up with uh, the slides. So please bear with me. And uh, just a second, let me take off my glasses so that I can actually read this thing, and uh, we'll get started. And uh, all right, so let's get started. So New York was launched in 1968 as a freestanding magazine sprung from the deceased Herald Tribune. Clay Felker, the editor, and Milton Glaser, the art director, conceived it as a brash upstart meant to make trouble for The New Yorker and The New York Times. Note that the magazine was launched unusually by an editor and an art director together. This is their first cover. It's pretty, but Glazer later called it a disaster. A newspaper supplement and a magazine were different beasts. See, I've already timed it badly. All right, here, in subsequent years, is how they fixed it. They grafted onto the magazine a more aggressive sensibility that borrowed heavily from the language of advertising in the 60s. A magazine infused with what in magazine jargon is often called point of view. The magazine was sardonic and smart, maybe a little obnoxious, but hardly ever pretentious, a publication about the urban bourgeois cultural revolution. Now fast forward about 30 years. Bruce Wasserstein bought the magazine. We're about to get there. Made me the magazine, uh, made me the editor, sorry. <laughs> I brought on Luke Heyman as the design director and Jody Kwan as photo director. Along with the rest of the gifted staff, we remade the magazine. Over the years, it had morphed, for various reasons, into more of a typical city magazine, which was a distortion of Felker and Glazer's intent. So first, we simply stuffed the magazine with stuff. We didn't know yet what was going to work. The new New York was dense, chaotic, and yet also intricately ordered. It was a loose riff on the city itself, madness contained within a tight grid. The New York of the 90s had become, the New York Magazine of the 90s had become dangerously associated with catering to only one type of reader, Upper East Side, private schools, etc. At the core of the new magazine was something we called the lookbook, a nice graphic page but with a subversive purpose to signal that we were inclusive and that our readership contained multitudes. We also launched what has become eventually our most popular page, just a grid that organizes big and small events of the week from brilliant to despicable, high culture to low. It was funny and meant to be full of tone. It's called the approval matrix. And to assert that our interest did in fact extend from highbrow to lowbrow. I was against this page at the beginning because I thought it was too reductive, but I was clearly wrong. In time, this sort of infographic became our signature, almost its own storytelling style. It was a visual expression of the magazine's tone. Here's one bit of graphicized narrative. When the soap opera All My Children ended its run, we charted every single plot twist of its 40 years. Did anyone actually read this? It didn't matter. The very insanity of it, the graphic and the show, was the point. Which is not to say that we didn't want this stuff to be read. The hypergraphic story form was an especially useful tool for service journalism. Here, for a story about breakfast in the city, are 100 serials reviewed. Fanatical, yes, but helpful if you're sick of Cheerios. Is it possible to be irreverent and aesthetically ambitious at the same time? One of the principles of the design was a rhythm of compression and relief. Still lives became an opportunity for a fetishistic art treatment of ordinary objects. Making illustrations out of photographs became a signature, the object to create a photographic cartoon in camera. For an article on the benefits of walking barefoot, Tom Sherlitz made these amazing pictures of shoes. But look closely, those are not shoes, they are painted bare feet. Our photography was not restricted to the conceptual. Often the purpose of the design is simply to get out of the way of the pure picture and let it tell its story using its own 
uh, tools of perspective. Here are pictures from the Occupy movement. To achieve a similar effect of those old Felker Glazer covers, we had one weapon they didn't have, Photoshop. This is a satiric cover made before Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie had their baby. We imagined the most expensive paparazzo picture in history and then just invented it. It looks uncannily like the one that a month or so later became real. Other magazines put movie stars or models or even news photographs on their cover every issue. Exhaustingly, we traffic in concept covers. Often we take full advantage of the creative community in this town. Elliot Spitzer resigns on a Tuesday, we close an issue on a Thursday. In between, we call several artists and designers and say, make us a cover. Barbara Kruger made this one. Radical simplicity is always best, though seldom achieved. Two more. When we were discussing a Bernie Madoff cover, Jody Kwan said simply that he looked a little like Heath Ledger as the Joker. Done. For the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we took a stock image of the burning towers and simply cropped in on it. First, we filled the cover with smoke that looked like clouds. Then we decide to let in, decided to let in a bit of that legendary blue sky. 10 years later, is this an optimistic or pessimistic cover? You decide. Sometimes, when we get too complicated, complications ensue. We put an ad on Craigslist asking for volunteers willing to get naked, then very carefully organize their bodies to cover all offending parts. The result, we missed one. Look fast, there's an exposed vagina on this cover, but I'm not gonna leave the slide up long enough for you to find it. Which brings us naturally to Lindsay Lohan. Jody Kwan happened to be having a conversation with the legendary photographer Bert Stern, who had taken a famous, picture, a famous series of nudish pictures of Marilyn Monroe and wanted to create the Marilyn pictures with Lindsay Lohan. The parallels of the downward spiraling Lohan and Monroe were provocative. For that reason, we thought Lohan would never did it, do it, but she did. This cover is the biggest selling cover of my tenure, not surprising. More importantly, it more or less made our website. In the first five days of its appearance, it got 101 million page views. NYMag.com was launched as a major digital destination with an audience dwarfing the magazine. The site covers general news, entertainment, fashion, food, sports, and politics, each with its own channel and a national audience of about 11 million people a month. From a design perspective, the object was to capture the spirit of New York Magazine look in digital form. Controlled chaos, fun without looking unserious. It was one of the first websites to go beyond simple, clean functionality to teach its readers to embrace density. Eventually, each of its parts grew to have its own identity. Last year, Vulture, one of the channels, became, in some sense, its own site with its own homepage. And so the design challenge was the same. As nymag.com was to New York Magazine, so Vulture was to nymag.com, a sibling with its own spirit but shared genetic forebears. And since we're in an Apple store, <laughs> a word on apps. This is one of our better of them, the cut on the runway. The cut is the name of our fashion channel. It's animated, graphic, and pretty popular, slick, and yet cheeky. It's hard to tell whether apps are the future of this business, but they are something to be reckoned with, surely. We're embarking on a one new super app now that I can't describe except to say that it will be an integration of everything we do and that it will be brash, irreverent, modern looking, meant to upend establishment apps and make trouble. A far cry, or maybe not a so far cry from, let's go, <laughs> from this. <laughs> That's six minutes, 40 seconds, and I thank you.
And I'm sorry that I'm not, we close our magazines on Thursday night, so I'm not going to be here for the Q&A, but thank you very much for listening. Hi, I'm Karen Fong. I'm a director and designer at Imaginary Forces, and I'm here to talk to you, uh, give you a case study of one of the pieces that is going to be found in the exhibition. It is the main title sequence for an AMC show called Rubicon. And this project started with a call from showrunner Henry Bromel and creator um, Jason Horwich. And they had basically a storyline in which you centered around a CIA-type agency uh, un who uncovers government um, you know, uh, conspiracies. And, and it was very much modeled after uh, these kind of psycho-thrillers from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You can see here um, the Parallax View, Manchurian Candidate, sort of like these sort of cerebral uh, stories. And, you know, they... One of the first things that Jason uh, showed me was a book uh, on infrastructure. And, and some of the ideas in this show were about, like, whoever controls the transportation, food, um, you know, the infrastructures of, of our nations really controls everything. And, and, and so the main characters are always, you know, trying to dig up pattern recognition. And um, one, of the, one of the most influential... Um, designers that I looked at for thinking of ideas for this title sequence was um, Edward Tufte's work. In fact, the main character in the show, Will, has Tufte's map um, that shows Napoleon's map march to the east on his wall, and that was a great jumping off point for these kind of infographics. This is the kind of character who would, uh, you know, examine like a Tokyo subway schedule to try to get clues about some sort of conspiracy. Also very influential to me is the photographer Taryn Simon. Um, she kind of, uh, if you don't know her work, she she photographs a lot of the underbelly of American institutions, some of the mundane things of the back office. Wait, right there is a bottle of live HIV. Another is the um, light. Oh, wait. Wait a sec. Um, yes, that's an absolutely great question. How many ideas do you usually present to, to a showrunner? That really varies. Sometimes an idea for a title sequence can hit you right away and you only present one idea. Um, you know, the one for Rubicon came rather quickly. At the same time, I was also working on the titles um, for Boardwalk Empire and I presented almost, almost, you know, 10 or a dozen ideas. But here, right here is a storyboard that we, was part of the initial presentation. Uh, as you can see, uh, we have a very analog look here. Um, even though the story takes place today, modern times, um, one of the things I think that really kind of uh, speaks to us about research and, and um, examining things is kind of like the language of slides on a table or microfiche or bits of paper in a folder and examining patterns. And so you can see a lot of the aesthetics is derived from that. If there is a color I would give the show, it would be one of a, a manila envelope just full of little beats, bits of ephemera. And so I worked with J Joey Salem on these, um, and you can see some of the influences worked into the storyboard here. And this is to give a general look and feel uh, you know, to, to our client and also work out ideas for ourselves on how we want it to look. Here, um, more ideas about pattern recognition, um, the ideas um, of examining and trying to find bits and pieces of clues for, you know, what might be a dangerous plot. This is what we call an animatic, and a, a lot of times this is a helpful thing to have. I think there's sound, actually. Um, you know, where we set it to music and, and give it a pace and give it, it gives a sort of mood piece. Uh, one of the, this was very much influenced by the, uh, the um, a sequence in the parallax view uh, and that dealt with subliminal messages. Did they go for it? That's an excellent question. Um, yes, 
And no, um, the clients at AMC and, uh, really wanted to have something graphic to represent the show. And I really appreciate that as a designer. So the idea of you know, producing something abstract, not just the characters' faces and, and the locations from the show. Something that gives an overall idea. And so that, they really liked the graphic idea. But one thing that was missing, and you can see here we started to research, was the idea that it wasn't urgent enough. It kind of looked like a math show. It kind of looked sort of cerebral. Like, you know, um, it didn't really get to the idea of like the fear you would find uh, when, you know, when you're trying to, you know, you might have discovered, a, you know, information that leads to a plane crash. It needs to be more immediate. And so um, we went back to the drawing board. I worked on these boards with Theo Daly and Jeremy Cox, and we made it much more overt that we were talking about, you know, threats, you know, to the population. Um, one of the uh, things I looked at were Jenny Holzer's uh, work, uh, redacted documents, and redacted documents themselves. And we were able to put in more language and more ideas that spoke to this fear. Again, you know, one of, the, one of the things that happens in the pilot is the character discovers a clue in a crossword puzzle. What if you looked at the WAN ads and you read them backwards and you found out that there was going to be, you know, um, a bridge blown up? So, and then one of the ideas, too, is the idea of doubt. Like, could we make the audience maybe think about you know, was there a relation? Was there an actual clue there? Or was that my imagination? The music, I have to say, has to be about 70 or 80% of our work with what we do. The emotional content often comes from the sound design. And you'll notice in these animatics, often we're working later with the composer on the actual score. So when we're putting things together, we might just pull music from similar shows or movies and put the images to it. A very, very crucial thing, too, that we did in this next round of design is this yellow line. And so this time, you're actually getting inside of the mind of an investigator. And instead of making these kind of crazy juxtapositions and uh, um, analysis for yourself, you're actually following somebody's thought pattern. That wasn't the actual piece. I'll leave that to see you to see when you visit the exhibit this summer. But I wanted to you know, take a couple questions now. Um, yes, title design absolutely applies to the rest of my work. I think one of the things that's great about being a title designer is just being able to uh, take elements of a story and kind of elevate them to icons. Take the idea and make um, you know, a small idea or a detail and make it larger than life. And that is absolutely something that influences me when I'm directing, a, whether I'm directing a commercial or doing cinematics for a video game, uh, such as God of War or this uh, Target commercial there, or other title sequences. I think I like the idea of taking something a little morsel and blowing it up and becoming, making it become a myth. Um, I think that is definitely something that influences all sorts of projects. And absolutely, I think the influence of graphic design is expanding in film and video. I think audiences and designers um, have become accustomed to integrating typography with many layers of other things, typography, illustration, live action, animation, in a way that our work becomes truly hybrid. Um, this, I'll close now for one of my absolute favorite images. This is from Hiroshi Sugimoto. This is the blank screen, and to me it just beckons. It says, come, come, come cr create something and redefine cinema. And I think that's something very exciting for us designers right now. Thanks. So I'm JK. Um, so we've been partners since 2006, and we're still trying to uh, articulate exactly what it means to uh, be a collaborative us as opposed to individual you and I. So our current method is, um, sorry, uh, to work side by side and together, uh, which allows for indirect influence on one another 
uh, in the short term, but in the long term, sort of try and build a, a real collaborative uh, effort. And so my independent work that I do is, is the result of overly complex uh, brute force manipulations of default settings, uh, appropriated materials in an attempt to find new form. So mountains are flattened computationally or an entire uh, font collection is sliced up and made into single letter forms. Uh, and I do a lot of typographic and slogan-esque work. Um, I also create a lot of objects and platforms that encourage absurd interactions. So in the upper right-hand corner, you have the anonymous hugging wall. And the lower left is an excerpt from the objects of codependency. And that one's called Just Between You and Me. Uh, and out of these independent practices, uh, we've both generated uh, some core working methodologies that often attempt to uh, uh, attain a similar end result, but the specifics and nuances uh, in voice are how we kind of keep our individuality. Um, and hopefully at the intersection is where magic happens. Um, though the longer that we work together, uh, the more that our work starts to converge and we adopt one another's methods. And um, one of the biggest and probably the most intuitive areas of overlap is this technique that we call breaking. Um, and since it's such a major part of our practice, we've uh, adopted it as a more structured form of research and development. And we just started this online archive um, for what we call materia misuse and tool breaking, which are ongoing studies using things in ways they weren't intended to be used. Um, and we call the first level studies attempts because a lot of them don't go anywhere, or at least not initially. So um, JK is trying to draw a straight line with a scanner up here, and I was doing a drawing machine with vacuums and inked marbles. Um, and then there are studies that end up leading down a more productive path. So I was doing these type extrusion studies, um, forcing materials through letter form templates, kind of forcing an evolution of meaning of the message, um, a loss of linguistic meaning as the new form unfurls. And I had previously been working on some typographic experiments that I called doublespeak. So uh, taking a word or a phrase and shifting or strengthening its meaning uh, by creating the large letter forms from the forms of smaller letters. So here words is created by truth. Um, and then in 2011, uh, we were commissioned by Jennifer Daniel uh, at Good Magazine uh, to do a page for them. And the focus of the issue was work or working today. And we thought that our parallel paths um, of typographic extrusion uh, would be a nice device to use for this sort of collaborative effort. So uh, we did some brainstorming. And, and JK taught me how to use this custom JavaScript plus Illustrator blend tool thing. And we both began designing and side by side kind of dueling designers. And on the left here is the some choice excerpts that the code shot out. Um, and on the right is a finalized finesse Z. Um, and the, for the final piece, we use the word mistake to write amazing. So we, we both like to work with not only interesting uh, misuses of communication, but also entertaining misuse of technology. Uh, and recently, uh, I began collaborating with Siri on a poetry project. Uh, and the iPhone is really great at translating what you speak to it in, and turning it into text. But I was curious, what if I purposely fed Siri some scat 
some sound effects or other nonsense words. And what she spit back was amazing. Uh, and so you're going to see a video translating Shuby Taylor, the human horn. Uh, so after that initial test, uh, Keetra and I kind of discussed how the output could be produced in a series of publications and posters uh, that act as another sort of misinterpreted feedback loop. So the first project is uh, beginning with a 46-minute per performance of Kurt Schwitter's uh, sound poem, Ursinate, uh, and then placing that back into the original design. Okay, so JK and I have been doing a series of dimensional type pieces um, since 2008. And I came up with the original process for these works when I was trying to think like JK. So um, we physically replicate the act of obsessing over something by hand layering material onto positive type forms. Uh, so our material of choice is wax uh, for this series, and when we were asked to do a piece for the graphic design now in production show, uh, we ordered over 400 pounds of wax. Uh, as you can see by the boxes, it lets you know. Uh, and then I constructed this unnecessarily complex, uh, you know, layering station and turned our kitchen into this waxy wonderland. Uh, and then we just got to work, layering and layering and layering night after night after night, uh, and kind of having a conversation with the materials as they built up and changed along the way. Uh, and we ended up layering for about three weeks straight for each of these large works that you'll see. And um, I have a real problem controlling my curiosity. And since I knew this work would take a long time to complete and I might not be able to help myself from digging into the layers a little bit early, we started doing these little sample pieces to develop in conjunction with the big piece so we could slice into it. Um, and those little guys only give us a vague idea of what's going on with the bigger work, which is torturous. Um, so we just have to persist until the guy reaches the proper size, and then we open up this enormous hinge on the layering station and flip the sucker over and slice it open and shave it down. And so the segment at the left is the test slab for the final piece at the right, uh, and that's the work that's actually in the show at Governor's Island. Uh, and it ended up being about 150 pounds worth of layered wax and paint. And yeah, so that's about, I hope to check it out. Doubly thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, well, just a quick intro. I'm Prem from Project Projects. Uh, I'm sporting a new fashion accoutrement as of today, so uh, slightly unusual for me. And I also should say, I'm here to represent a kind of somewhat largish, unruly group of people. I'm here to represent Project Projects, a studio of anywhere between 10 to 15 people with collaborators throughout the world and in other places. And sometimes we agree, much of the time we disagree, um, and uh, it's probably the, for the best. Uh, and in particular, I just want to mention 
uh, Adam Michaels, the other founder of Project Projects, Rob, G Rob Jean Petro, the other principal of Project Projects, uh, and in this case, I'll give him a big shout out later, but Juan Choi, who in particular on this project has been uh, kind of instrumental. Sorry, this intro is already going to be like a minute, but I'm going to say one more thing just because I'm not going to make it through otherwise, which is just to say, this is a funny thing. Project Projects, as, as, as Andrew so kindly kind of introduced us uh, before, you know, we're involved in the show in so many weird ways, like we're in the show, we kind of talked with the walker about the identity of the show, we designed the New York installation of the show, and so sometimes it gets a little confusing to even to us what we're doing, what we're not doing, sometimes we forget a lot of things. So anyways, let's start it out. So in some ways, with this kind of focus on production, I thought it might best be kind of a uh, useful for me to take this as a possibility to actually talk about the production of this piece of graphic design, which hopefully many of you will go see on Governor's Island starting May 26th. And the point is that in any graphic design process, there are all these things that happen along the way. Ideas that maybe you don't take the first time around, but then suddenly go somewhere else. So as I said, just to jump back for a second, we're in the show in a lot of weird ways. In 2002, um, Let's just say I squatted the Apple Store um, in Soho. When it was first there, I made all of my graphic production for a period of time at the, at the Apple Store. Um, it was kind of a weird thing. I once got thrown out of there. Um, I won't talk too much about that, but it's there in the piece. And what I want to say about that is that at that moment in time already, there's a real interest in production, in how the production of work actually influences the end product. Um, as Project Projects, when Adam and I first teamed up, we were very interested in the intersection of the real and the image the representation, if you were. This is from New York Magazine, from their um, highlights of the week thing. We actually, well, it's already gone, but basically we took all these photographs in our studio that then became the work for the magazine. And, and this idea of context, this is a series of books that Adam edits, which is called Inventory Books. The newest one, the Electronic Information Age book, um, which features uh, an introduction by Andrew Blauvat as well, but basically is, a, is about Marshall McLuhan and the books of the 60s and 70s that actually collapse the roles of artist and, I mean, sorry, designer and editor and kind of producer. But how are graphic designers themselves produced? Rob Giampietro, one of my partners, writing in the catalog for the book about MFA programs, graphic design education, and how this very kind of sense of graphic design is constructed in schools today and in the past 30 years. So I guess the question we keep asking ourselves is how graphic design itself can be a site of production. How rather than just being something that presents, it can actually be a platform. It can actually create work. And this is a question we've asked in a lot of different contexts in other places. But in particular, when the Walker, when Emmett Byrne from The Walker and Andrew came to us and said, can you think with us about the identity of graphic design now in production? We kind of started to say, well, what are all the ideas about graphic design that we've ever had in the past 10 years that we could somehow throw into this thing? And I mean, in a way, that's the best part of it. You know, we started out, we said, well, maybe we take all these different typefaces that we like. And the identity of the show actually becomes a hybrid thing, because how can you represent what graphic design it is? But then we said, well, what's the least important part of any exhibition. The wall label. It's the thing that people put up on the last day and nobody cares about. And so we said, well, what if we actually flip this around and we commission every designer in the show to design their own wall label? Huh, that would be really weird. It would take a lot of time. It'd make a lot of people unhappy. But in the end, we'd end up distributing them as postcards. And then you'd actually, instead of making a work for a show, because the key thing is that graphic design doesn't exist in exhibitions. Graphic design exists in the world. People make it, they use it, they see it every day. So why can't we just make a thing that actually people take with 
them, that it becomes actually part of the world again. Or we said, well, the thing is that graphic design, it's not fine art, there overlaps, obviously, but people make graphic design for money for certain people under certain contexts. So shouldn't we kind of talk about that a little bit more when we're exhibiting graphic design? Shouldn't we actually take the conditions of its production and expose those things, tell those to people so that other people can do the same or do differently? Um, so then we said, well, actually, maybe the point is that what is a show of graphic design? Maybe you need to blow that up a little bit. Like, if you have all the things in the show, there's all these other pieces of graphic design and things that they refer to and things that the people we're looking at and you know why can't we just say let's set up a system where everybody who comes to the show can add anything they want into that show maybe you can actually come into the show and there's some wall labels there but they're not the authoritative text actually you can bring in something else that you think is pretty nice and put it up there or maybe it becomes again a platform for presentation and that to me is the kind of as I lose my slides that's the kind of key point which is really that you know Graphic design doesn't have to be a static thing. It doesn't have to be branding. In fact, I should really say, I never even used the word branding until about a year ago. I have refused to because why should something simply make something into something it's not? Things ought to actually perform. So now I'm jumping a long way forward to the actual exhibition, and I'm just saying that's a building you'll see. Um, if you see that type, tell me, you know, because it's like, but basically, you might recognize this building. And the point is, is that this is, this is one of the first designs that we made together with the architects, Leong Leong, who are an instrumental part of this process. One of the things I want to do, I might not do well enough, is name everybody who has been involved in this process, because graphic design is collaborative. It doesn't happen with one person sitting in a room alone. It happens with a bunch of different people talking about things, coming up with ideas, arguing, agreeing, disagreeing, and figuring out how to make the best thing out of it. And so when you have a space like a building on Governor's Island that's not really used for exhibitions, but it happens to be the only functioning bathrooms on Governor's Island, what do you do? You take the hallway where everybody will go who gives nothing, who doesn't care about graphic design, and you make it into something that maybe they'll stop and think about. Maybe. We'll see. But if you go to the bathroom, please check it out. And in the end, what you have is a space. You have a space as an intervention. A space that actually, in a way, rather than just being an exhibition that presents things in a museum, it actually takes things and tries to say, what are the conditions of spectatorship? How is it that people look at things, and how can we rupture that? How can we break it down? So, I mean, um, I'm going to jump again before, and I don't even know where these notes went, but I'm going to jump ahead and say, this is Project Projects. This is Project Projects on a particularly clean day. No, no, that's not true. This is Project Projects on the day when we invited Andrew Ingalls, another photographer whom I want to name, to come to our studio and actually shoot all of the photographs that would be used for the advertising of the show. This is the result of that, which is to say we took up nearly everything that came from the process of the show, including all the type that we printed out at one-to-one -one scale in order to test the kerning and the spacing. If you don't know what those are, then come talk to me because I love talking about kerning. It's the best thing in the world. It's the only thing that makes graphic designers graphic designers is typography and kerning. So, and then you take that thing, you put it up in the world at one-to-one -one scale, so that there you can see a couple of people of our studio at real scale. They will loom over you, and if you want to, you can go up and read the notes that I wrote at a meeting on January 20th, approximately, about the show, and it's all there. That is the show, in the thing, in the world. And this is Project Projects, in the space, sadly without Rob Jean Pietro on this day, because I think he might have actually been somewhere else in the world teaching, as he often does, to great effect, but otherwise everyone else here. And I want to say, again, a big shout out to everyone who was involved in this at our studio and otherwise, and Juan Choi in particular, standing there, who's probably embarrassed as hell right now. And thank you all. Please go see the show, May 26th, Governor's Island.
guys, so um, we're going to have some questions and answers. I want to I bring our talent back up here onto the stage. Okay, come on, people. Um, and so if you have some questions for the designers or some questions for the curators, um, we're going we're gonna to answer them. How's that? Any questions? Yes. Yes, microphone. Can you hear me? All right. So with all this technology that's been condensed into a little box, uh, how do you avoid the disconnect between uh, uh, thinking and relying on technology to make it happen? Does that make sense? Who you know, is, over, yeah. What I'm saying is there's an over-reliance on technology to make the work come to life. And how do I avoid using it as a crutch? Uh, apparently, we're going to answer this one. Uh, well, I don't think you need technology to do much, much of this, actually. Uh, I don't, that's my simple answer. Yeah, but, but you use technology in a lot <laughs> of do, your work. We do, we do. But you I mean, kind of break it apart and open it up. And I do think um, technology does push us in the ways that we develop, um, and it's important to push back and have a conversation with the technology. What's the potential? Is it doing what you want it to do yet? And how, how can you form it to work for you? Yeah, technology is tools. Tools can be analog. They can be digital. Uh, you had it in one of your slides, actually, thinking... Uh, making, thinking through, <laughs> making through breaking, making through breaking, thinking, thinking is, making, is doing, thinking yeah. is doing yeah. is making. Yeah. It's all part of a continuous process, and if it ever isn't, then that's probably when you have a problem. And can I add one thing? Yeah. Can I add one thing? Just ideally, I mean, in my mind, ideally, there's both technology. Obviously, influences the things that it makes, but at the same time, it's a feedback loop, and something comes before there. And I mean, the worst times I ever find are if I sit in front of a blank screen without an idea of what I'm going to do, because ultimately, um, Illustrator isn't going to tell me that. The screensaver does. A um, exhibition on graphic design. You don't rarely see that context and that. Um, media in an exhibition. Have you guys had a lot of pushback from the idea of doing graphic design now in production, seeing as design can be seen everywhere as opposed to going to a gallery and seeing it? It seems like people really enjoy, though, coming to the museum and, and seeing it. We've had a lot of success. The, the show is really well received at the Walker, and we know it's going to be packed here in New York City because so many people are, are interested in that very everydayness. You know, so many people engage in design, whether they're professionals or just want to play around with their own business card or a blog or whatever. People are really connected to this medium. Um, yeah, and I think they enjoy kind of seeing it set aside in a special place. Because that's what a museum is. It makes things special. Yeah, yeah it makes them valuable now. <laughs> makes them need to be protected from people. Um, yeah, I mean, if you'd done the show a long time ago, there might have been pushback, like, oh, it's commercial or something like that. No, it's totally different today because I think the idea of creativity is so democratized and so popularized that it's sort of like you, they might see a reflection of themselves. And some things in the show are super mainstream, so it would be like, yeah, I know the Starbucks logo. Um, but 
other things are not. And that's graphic design works at all different scales. It's for 100 people, for 10 people, for one person. That could be debatable, but <laughs> or it could be for 10 million people. And so because you see some fringe stuff, or what I would call fringe stuff that your, you know, your parents aren't going to see, um, that makes the show extra special, I think, to gather it all together. It's like a crazy dinner party. Yeah, yeah and I think there's a lot more um, acceptance of, of what I call commercial art. You know, the, I think there's a huge renaissance of illustration, for example, and low-cost fine art, uh, printmaking, where there's a real kind of openness about creating things for sale. And I think there's kind of an older generation that kind of looked askance at that, and we kind of like, hey, you know, everybody's in business, and it's fun, yeah. Any more questions from the audience? Um, with this user-generated content and the exhibition, you made some reference to uh, where like, people in attendance will affect or can interact with uh, the exhibition. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, one of the things that you'll see at the exhibition is a digital poster wall. And as you walk in, there's this kind of like a poster wall on the street, only all the posters are projected. Um, and as you walk past, new posters are being produced, and you can send a message to the system and instantly see a new poster created by software in response to what you sent to the system. Um, and it's a kind of a new, new model of what design can be. It's a project designed by a group called Lust in the Netherlands. And what they created was the rules and the system that then generates these designs randomly. Um, and so it's a very new way of thinking about design as something that isn't controlled by the designer. The designer creates the initial conditions, and then you just see what happens. And what happens is different every five minutes, every three minutes. It's, it's really exciting, kind of new way to look at graphic design. Yeah, and that was that was that project itself has evolved over time from using strictly computer algorithms in order to create those rule sets for the computer essentially to create the design capturing um, data flow like text text uh, capturing text from websites or images from websites almost nearly randomly to incorporating social media into the project where you can have a user contribute content in this case headlines by tweeting for example. Okay, should we wrap it up? Okay, thanks, thanks very much, and um, please join us on Governor's Island. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>